Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Well, welcome along to the show, everyone. This is Stephen Moe. Today we're going to be speaking with Professor Rob Lindemann from the HIT Lab, and the HIT stands for Human Interface Technologies. And in the conversation with Rob, we'll be talking about virtual reality, augmented reality, and what the future might hold. This is all part of a focus on tech for the next few weeks. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Rob. And I'd like to say that we really focus on the person as opposed to the technology. And so we start with the person and we say, okay, here's a person who has certain capabilities. They're old, they're young, they're able, disabled. Um, they're trying to get a certain task done or set of tasks done. Um, studying or um, training or, or some job that they have, um, and they're working in a certain environment. They're they're mobile or they're um, in an office environment. They're in a school environment, and by taking these three things, we then look at the best technologies to support whatever it is they're trying to do. Today's interview is the first in a series of conversations focusing on technology, and that's in the lead up to Tech Week being held here in Christchurch in May of 2018. So next week, we're going to be speaking with Peter Beggs from Antarctica, New Zealand, and we're going to find out about how technology is used in Antarctica. I hope you'll be able to join me for that and some other upcoming episodes that are focused on technology. If you enjoy this interview, then you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes as well, because this is the 38th episode interviewing somebody about their life and what they're doing now. To make sure you don't miss out, the easiest way is to hit subscribe in the podcast app that you're using to listen to this episode. Now, let's get into this interview with Rob. All right, so it's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Rob Lindemann from the Hit Lab at the University of Canterbury. Thanks for joining me today. I'm really happy to be here. This is a really great opportunity. Yeah, well, it's great to have you because I remember um, we first met now, it's getting on almost two like years two ago, years, yeah. yeah, at that um, Canterbury Tech Summit, mm-hmm. and um, I think I gave you a ride at the end of the evening, That's right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really, and actually, some of those first conversations we had um, was getting me thinking about it'd be great to interview people and, and get different specialties on the podcast. So here you are. It's wonderful. See, it all fits. It all fits together. This podcast episode is going to be released during May of 2018, which is when Tech Week is going to be happening here in Christchurch. So it's kind of going to coincide there. And just before we dive into your background in history, can you just tell us a little bit about HitLab and what it stands for? Sure. So the HitLab stands for the Human Interface Technology Laboratory. Um, and it was originally founded in 2002 as kind of a sister lab to the HIT lab at the University of Washington in Seattle in the United States. Um, and there was a guy there called Tom Furness, who is one of the most renowned virtual reality people in the field. And he had uh, a Kiwi PhD student uh, called Mark Billinghurst. Um, who is since now also one of the leading people in the field. And then after he finished his PhD, the two of them decided that maybe they should open a lab in New Zealand. Um, and Mark was keen to come back. So that was founded in 2002 with um, a very interesting goal, which was to um, develop um, technologies around augmented and virtual reality and then to transition them to um, spin-offs, which is the model they used in Seattle. Um, and so fast forward, 
and um, the HIT lab is in the College of Engineering, um, and we're really kind of an outward-facing research lab around immersive technologies. Right. And we're meeting here in Rickerton, so it's literally a five-minute drive That's from here, right, isn't yeah. it? The University of Canterbury. Or a ten-minute cycle. Ten-minute cycle. <laughs> Great. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to come back to that, and particularly your um, area that I know you've done a lot in, virtual reality, and talk about that. Um, but what I find helpful is often with these podcasts, it's good to go back to the beginning of a person's life and just to understand a bit of context about where they're from, because that often then places them in the context of what they're doing now. So in your case, could we just go, let's rewind right back to the beginning and just tell us a bit about where you're from. Sure. Um, uh, so I was, um, I'm American, so I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, um, and um, you don't, I don't need to go into too much detail about that. I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., um, and went to university, and I got a Bachelor of Arts in Computer Science at a liberal arts college. And that, that childhood, like, were you into computers and that type of so thing So I've always early been on, a or? science fiction okay. geek, I guess, um, and I wasn't very strong in maths. I wasn't, um, I wasn't the best student, um, but I always loved um, science fiction a lot. So I, I, I read some, I watched a lot of um, sci-fi on television and Star mm -hmm. Trek and um, Star Wars. Um, so I was 12 when Star Wars came out, the original one. And, um, you know, just being, being raised when space was so front and center in terms of the U.S. trying to get to the moon and, and that whole thing definitely had some influence on me in terms of science. Mm. So it's late 70s, early 80s, that sort of crucible right. of... Um you're right. There was a lot going on, wasn't there? When there you was, think about there Star was Wars, a lot going on in terms of space and yeah. uh, the potential, and then lots, of, lots of television shows about um, you know Star Trek and Space 1999 was this other show that was on that was all about uh, how we colonized the moon, and um, so those things were definitely something that um, I was drawn to um, in a big way. Yeah. Um, and how much did that fandom take you? Like, did you? go to conferences or that type of thing? Because there is a, there's an, there's a line, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, so um, I never, I think I, I never uh, crossed that line in a, in a direct way, I would say. So I never dressed up and uh, I didn't have a lightsaber or, um, but uh, it was really just um, following along and, and more inside. It was very inspirational to me to think about um, positive views of the future and things that we could do um, going forward. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I graduated from university um, in 1987, and then I moved to Germany for six years. Mm -hmm. um, I had met a, a woman, and I had, I had done my junior year, or my, my third year in, um, in Scotland, and traveled around Europe, and said, I'm a computer scientist, I could work anywhere, I might as well go work in Europe, because it was really cool. So, um, and I had no interest in going back to school anyway. I was so done with uni. Um, and so I went and I worked in Germany. I was making real-time software, uh, factory automation stuff, very not related to anything um, relatively exciting. Um, but then by chance, I took a master's course. I started doing a master's course, and it really appealed to me. The, the life of the professors seemed to be really great. They were working on topics that they were interested in. And so then I went... So I went and did a master's degree, and then I decided this actually is really great. Yeah. So I gave up a high-paying high salary um, and the, all the trimmings and uh, went back to being a poor student, moved back to the States, and started a PhD in virtual reality. 
um, and I had a really good professor there who kind of to, kind of encouraged me to go further. Um, and so I went back and found a place at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., which is where I did my Ph.D. Hmm. Um, and then I was living the dream. I was um, studying virtual reality at a time when it was really kind of in its infancy. Yeah. So what year are we talking about? So I started in 1993, and I finished in 1999. So in the States, the Ph.D. is, um, different, is structured differently than in, in New Zealand. So typically you do... I did 10 courses, 10 classes that I needed to take, and then you start doing research. Mm. So it's not uncommon to take five, six years to do a PhD. And at the same time, I was teaching um, computer science stuff and um, just really had all this great kit that I could just play with and um, the really early virtual reality stuff. Yeah. So just let's have a little side road here into <laughs> virtual reality because I want to come back sure, to your life and sure. what you did next. But um, what are the origins of it like where if you're tracing it back um what so, was happening even like before then in the 80s or yeah you know, so it's, like, it's a good question so there are several strands and some of them lead back to the early military flight simulators actually in the the tw 1920s and 30s around training pilots in these mechanical simulators and some people trace virtual reality back to that i see um and then um, there's a seminal paper by a guy called Ivan Sutherland in 1966 around called The Ultimate Display, which is describing virtual reality as it is today, which is you have something that you wear on your head that blocks out the real world and um, makes everything seem everything virtual that you see seem real. Um, and he talks about a, a, an environment like this would, uh, a chair would, would be able to support your weight. A virtual chair would be able to support your weight. Handcuffs would keep you restrained. Um, and bullets would kill you. Um, so his, his vision was um, a lot deeper than we are yet. Um, but um, anyway, that, was, that kind of launched a whole group of people uh, working on the topic. And then the military has been a big, uh, the U.S. military has been a big um, proponent of um, virtual reality for an improving simulation, the cost of training and um, all the logistics of training. Um, mm. And so they've been a big funder. And so a lot of the early work was really done uh, by um, the U.S. military uh, mm. through funded projects, as well as NASA has done a lot of work. Mm. Um, and if you were tracing it back in terms of popular culture, mm. like the 1966 paper, was that right. an academic paper? It was, was an it? academic paper. So yeah. he was at, um, at MIT, at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, yeah. Popular culture is... Um, I'm just curious how it filtered in, you know, or, right. or was it before then you like, did H.G. Wells sort of write about it even so earlier? So my, or, my yeah. first um, introduction is kind of um, in Star Trek, The Next Generation, there's the holodeck that they were, right. the, the people can go into this room and it transforms into a bunch of different kinds of scenarios that they want. Um, and then for me, um, the books uh, by William Gibson, um, the ne uh, Neuromancer Trilogy, um, which was in the late uh, late 80s. Um, these books, Neuromancer, uh, Mona Lisa Overdrive, um, and the other one that I can't remember, um, as well as books like Snow Crash. So these books, um, I would say, uh, for a lot of researchers my age, so I'm 52, um, researchers my age was, uh, was really a huge, huge influence in terms of... Um, allowing us in our minds to develop what virtual reality will be like by planting the seeds of um right of description and describing a possibility maybe that 
that otherwise was very difficult to imagine. Right. Yeah. Yep. And um, so, and more lately, um, so other mo- some movies as well, but more lately, um, Ready Player One, the mm-hmm. um, the book is really really good. Um, and um, this is what I tell my students to read now is is here's something maybe it's a little bit up to date. Right. Um, and um, I haven't seen the movie yet, but the movie's supposed to be really uh, yeah. really good as well. And in terms of just popular culture. I remember watching The Matrix. Mm-hmm. That must have been yeah. sort of quite a because that did very well. Yep. Was that one of the that was late nineties? Yeah, it, it was ninety nine. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. um, I, I guess I'm always curious when do things transition from sort of academia right. into popular culture, and what is yep. the means for that to happen? You know, like you said, space yeah. travel. Right. You know, like Star Trek and Star Wars. And right. That kind of starts to normalize the discussion, doesn't it? Yep, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think um, The Matrix was. I think a good movie by itself, but also a very, very inter- interesting take on the technology of, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's many definitions of virtual reality, for example. So, um, the great philosopher Qui-Gon Jinn once said that your focus determines your reality. And that's, um, it really is kind of what you're focusing on really, um, defines what you, how you perceive things. Um, mm-hmm. the other things, um, for my dissertation, I had to come up with a, with a definition and, um, what I came up with, it's really fooling the senses into believing they're experiencing something that they're not actually experiencing. Right. Um, and in the end, virtual reality exists in the brain. Um, no matter how much, I mean, the, the stimulating the senses is really just a transport to making the brain think it's in a certain place or, or experiencing a certain thing. Mm. Um, so in the future, maybe we can bypass the senses altogether and go for direct cranial stimulation or mm. something like that. Which we, is sort of in the matrix, that's sort of where they get to, that's isn't right. it? Like so all these things plugged in, into your body and yeah. uh, stimulating your muscles and uh, your sense of balance and things. So yeah. um, And the whole premise there is you don't even know that you're a part of it, right? That's right. That's <laughs> right. Take the red pill or the blue that's pill right. and that type of thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, I think we're going to come back to that because there's, there's a few different questions I have about virtual reality. Um, but let's continue with your life and just thinking through... Um, or sort of mid-90s, I guess, or you're studying, and um, what happens next? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, my undergraduate degree was in a liberal arts college, um, and I had the good fortune of doing my PhD in a college of engineering. So science and engineering are always talked about together, you know, in STEM, especially today, but they actually have very different approaches to things. So science um, often... Um, comes up with a hypothesis, and it's it's all about describing certain behavior, predicting certain behavior, repeatability of of, of studies and things like that. And it's really trying to develop um, things that we can use, rules that we can we can use in the future. And engineering is often about um, the, the designing things to change change the world somehow. So it's uh, affecting some sort of change. So science, you could think of it as, as generating knowledge. And, and engineering is about changing the world somehow. So understanding the world versus changing the world. You can mm-hmm. think of it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the approaches are very different in the two. So having gone, having really kind of grown up in a computer science um, area that grew out of the sciences as opposed to engineering, I learned things in a certain way. And then um, the engineering approach is um, is really about a lot of is building things and um, a lot of prototyping. And so I think these two things combined, again, with another unique thing is most academics don't go to industry and then come back to academia. So mm. it's very 
the standard path is you do a bachelor's degree, you do a master's degree, you do a PhD, you get a job at university, and, and, and that's your trajectory. And I think that having this, having spent six years in industry, working in um, a project-based um, structure has really bene- benefited me greatly in terms of my teaching and my research and that um, I, I can combine all of these things together in a way that really relates to the students because, hey, I'm working on this cool thing that actually has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, and it resonates with um, industry partners because I can talk to them and structure the projects in such a way that they can understand this person has actually delivered a product um, in the past. And so I think, um, again, I think these three things together um, mesh in a really good way in terms of um, where I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I finished my PhD in 99, um, uh, so during my PhD, I met my wife, who's Japanese. Um, and so she helped and thankfully supported me during my four times as a student. And then when I finished my PhD, she started her PhD um, in political science. It's a very different field. But because she's Japanese, we actually spend a lot of time traveling to Japan. And the nice thing about an academic job in the States is that I had a nine-month salary, so a nine-month contract. It was every year, but um, for three months of the year, I was basically on my own. So what that allowed us to do is um, we went to Japan every summer for six weeks, and I would work at a different Japanese research lab or university lab, mm-hmm. um, and they would they would pay me pay me to fly over. They'd uh, pay me a bit of a uh, living salary, and then um, and my university was happy because I was um, expanding my skills, expanding my network, mm-hmm. and um, coming back energized to to the um, to the university. So. I'm really privileged, but I, I did this. Uh, we like to say my 17-year-old daughter has been to Japan 18 times right. because we just went every year. So it allowed our kids are, are bilingual, so they, it allowed them to really strengthen their Japanese language skills, to really understand Japanese culture, mm. um, and allowed my wife to get back to Japan every year, which was very good. Yeah, um, And I learned a lot about how research is done in the Japanese context, which is also very fascinating. Yeah. Um, so talk us through that. Uh, just unfold that a little bit, you know, like origami. <laughs> right. You know that I lived in Japan for five years as well, right, so yeah. I'm really curious. I was in Osaka for a year and Tokyo for four years. Right. So whenever I meet somebody who's also lived in Japan, I'm always wondering about their experience you know and what it was like so what were some of the differences that you noticed maybe in that taking what you just said that that research style or the way of approaching things so uh, as you know japan's a very complex country you know Mm. there's there's it's full i like to say it's really full of juxtapositions it's got it's got unbelievably deep tradition and then unbelievably new cutting edge um, um popular culture and um, it has baseball and sumo. It's it's got you know all these things that you can that you could combine and in, in, um, it's and got the old and the, and new, the new, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. So um, the first thing is the Japanese professors work very hard. So I definitely noticed that when I was there. Um, the other the other thing um, in virtual reality, especially um, at that time, um, there was a lot of exploration in terms of the different senses. So, so the like touch feedback, for example, you know, the sense of touch, 
Um, most of the focus around that time has always been around visuals and audio to a lesser degree. But so visuals has been the primary. So most research labs have been focusing on, on kind of visual feedback. And the Japanese are very well known for focusing on things like the sense of touch. And I think a lot of that actually comes from the robotics revolution that happened. That industrial robotics was really um, just huge in Japan in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And so they have this very strong group of people on mechatronics. Um, hmm. And so some of this kind of force feedback or touch feedback type of things is a natural growth of, hey, let's apply this technology on um, for the sense of touch. So it's not, we don't need to control robots, we'll control things that are like robots that will. Um, so um, some of the interesting things is um, a lot of the, really wacky, wacky VR um, prototypes have come out of Japan in that time because they just don't seem to, they just build it. It's like, hey, let's do this. It's like, well, why should we do it? They don't even think about that, I think. It's just, let's build it and see what happens. And oftentimes, maybe it doesn't pan out, but I, I've yet to see uh, something come out of a Japanese research lab and I've said, huh? It's really like, wow, that is so cool. It's great that they just went ahead and did it and maybe it's not going to pan out, but at least we know that this thing that a lot of people have been maybe bouncing around in their head um, has been tried, and um, it's good right. that they were able to. They just to, went ahead and did it and just, see what yeah, happens. Exactly. <laughs> so there's this guy called um, Professor Iwata from Tsukuba, Tsukuba University, mm. and he has this long string of um, developing these locomotion interfaces. So how one of the big problems in, in virtual reality is you have an unlimited virtual space that you need to walk around and you need to move around in, but you have a, a limited couch space or office space or something. And so finding a good way to map this l really limited physical space with this infinite virtual space is a really big open problem in virtual reality. And I can explain it, and probably it's very simple to understand. It's like, oh yeah, I could see that. Well, you could use a joystick to move around, or you could maybe point somewhere and fly around, or you could teleport somewhere. Um, but what this guy Iwata did is he built all of these contraptions, all of these contraptions around helping people move around in semi-realistic ways. So um, treadmills is a good example. So have somebody walk on a treadmill. So what he did is he said, well, let's make a treadmill of treadmills. Right. So he put, uh, he mounted treadmills at right angles on top of a conveyor belt. And mm -hmm. so there are treadmills moving in one direction and then other treadmills moving uh, at 90 degrees to those. And now you could theoretically walk in any direction because mm -hmm. there'll always be a treadmill moving you back to the middle. And it's unbelievably dangerous, unbelievably expensive <laughs> and loud and um, kind of everything that you don't want um, a product to be. But it's really interesting to yeah. have somebody be able to. And so he's had this string of, of unbelievable numbers of these locomotion thing, all focused on the same problem of this mapping of this finite physical space mm. to infinite virtual space. Wow. So there's lots of things that came out of Japanese labs there. Um, and I've had... Um, some really good publications and work where I've just been, we've been, I've ha been having lunch with, uh, with some professors in Japan and we just come up with these crazy ideas and it just kind of, we're able to prototype something within the time it. that I'm there. Huh. And it, so it's been really, really fruitful for me. And again, it, uh, as a, as a person, as a, as a hopefully creative person, it really allows me to see other people's processes of, of how they go about and their, their, th their thought processes. 
um, and then um, just being able to carry those through. Yeah, that's amazing. And just thinking about the origin of that, what do you think it is? Is there is it a cultural thing that they would be doing this, or why isn't it happening in other places? I don't know. So it could be. So there is this place in Japan called ATR, which is Advanced Telecommunications telecommunications research lab which was in um in kyoto mm. and this was a very unique place so this was a um a, a government private funded um mashup um and the lab employs the first place that i'd ever seen where they employed engineers and artists in the same lab right so they had they probably had um i don't know 150 people and they just it was a it was a place where everybody just kind of talked to each other. They presented to each other. They brainstormed. They'd build stuff. And in the '90s, this was really a hotbed of really interesting stuff that was being developed. Um, and I, we were they were producing papers and demos and things like that. And so actually, that was my first exposure to Japan before I ever went there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so there was um, that cross fertilization across right. the artists and the engineers and supported and the, by government I so see. it was fully funded really yeah. by government and and through the um the conglomerates which are pseudo government uh, organizations anyway yeah, yeah. um That's and really so fascinating because i i interviewed somebody else named franca bulo mm. and we were, she's from germany and we were, and she's just finishing her phd and she was describing the um the benefits of cross-fertilization across disciplines. Right. You know, like an environmental social scientist talking to an architect, you know, and that, that there's actually so much that you can learn from each other. Right. But too often we get caught in our silos, you know, like, well, we, we do the software stuff and we do that. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying is that that, that was happening, that they were able to yep. feed in and come up with new creative things. And I have to say, if I look at the lasting impact of the products... Mm there's not much you can point to. So they made a lot of great demos of things. I mean, it was right. really, but that thought process has kind of created a generation of people who have gone on. Mm-hmm. So the idea is you stay in that lab, that, like the researchers would stay there for three, four years and then they'd go to university somewhere. So the idea is they're now teaching the I next see. generation. So so wow. I think the knock-on effects, and, and Mark Billinghurst, my, my predecessor in the lab, uh, was there for a while mm-hmm. and some other kind of really big people in the field were there for some time. So everybody, many, I was there for five summers in a row. So wow. like um, uh, many people can trace their, um, some of their roots back to um, work at ATR hmm. um, in the heyday. Yeah. Uh, I missed the heyday maybe by by like two or three years, but it was, uh, I, I did, you know, a lot of stuff that I'm still using today uh, was developed when I was there. Yeah. Oh, that's um, great. So what happened next? Where where did you end up after? So I I stayed at, at GW as a, um, uh, a contract professor, mm-hmm. um, as, a assistant professor for six years while my wife was... Um, getting to the point in her PhD where she could move. Um, and so when she did, um, I got a, I was um, really happy to get a position at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, which is um, a first-class engineering university in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, so we moved up there. Um, that was in 2005. And I joined a new program that they were starting on um, game development. So back in 2005, it was right at the beginning of kind of this boom of teaching game development at universities in the States and, and, and really worldwide. Um, so this university took a chance, and I had been doing virtual reality, and they said, ah, oh, virtual reality, gaming, this is something, and I was a, a really strong programmer. Um, and so they said, this, sound, this could be really good. 
So I applied for this position, and luckily I was able to get the position, and mm. I stayed there for 11 years. Um, and I was I was director um, towards the end. And during that time, I came to New Zealand, actually, to the HIT Lab mm. as a visiting um, fellow mm. um, through the Erskine Fellowship from that really unique fellowship that that um, that University of Canterbury has. Um, so I came here for my family, and I came here for a year. Oh. Um, and I mainly came here because I'm a virtual reality person, and I came to work more on augmented reality, which is um, which we can talk about a bit. We just really loved New Zealand a lot. Mm. Um, and we went back to the states um, after the year, and we just kept talking about New Zealand and mm. how great it was. And your kids um, enjoyed it as well. My obviously. kids enjoyed it. They yeah. really enjoyed it a lot. Um, so they were in primary school. The yeah. two of them were in primary school. So anyway, um, yeah, we just we just really liked it here. So we went back to the states, and then. Mark decided to go somewhere else, and his position became open, and so I applied for it, and then it worked out. Mm. Um, I asked my wife, and she said, yes. Let's do it. Let's go. It's great that you'd had that year trial period, right? Yeah, like definitely. you knew what you were getting into. Right. <laughs> and the lab, again, I had known about the lab for years and years. It's, it really is, especially the lab in Seattle, all of the really big research was coming out of there in the 90s. Mm. And then when they started the lab here, the same thing. They did a great job of just producing top quality research, and so... Um, many, many people had already had a great reputation. Mm. Um, and so the, given the chance to actually join this, this outstanding, you know, it's probably one of the top three labs in the world in mm. terms of um, augmented reality at the time. Mm. Um, well, let's talk about that because I think for some people listening, probably living in Christchurch, won't know that much about it. So I'd love you, for you to explain just sort of what topics you're covering and um, what sort of areas of research is actually going on. I printed out from the website, I was really intrigued by um, the fact that at the start it says we put people before technology. Like that's even before you get into the mission statement. It says something like we put people before technology. So that's maybe right. just help us to understand that and also just what is it that's going on just a couple uh, minutes by bike away from here. Sure. The the research that we do, so we're the Human Interface Technology Lab, and I like to say that we really focus on the person as opposed to the technology. And so we start with the person, and we say, okay, here's a person who has certain capabilities. They're old, they're young, they're able, disabled. Um, they're trying to get a certain task done or set of tasks done, um, studying or um, training or, or some job that they have. Um, and they're working in a certain environment. They're, they're mobile or they're um, in an office environment, they're in a school environment. And by taking these three things, we then look at um, the best technologies to support whatever it is they're trying to do. So um, by starting with the person as opposed to the technology, your solution space is a lot bigger. So we're not a VR lab that's going to solve your problems with virtual reality. We're a human interface technology lab that's going to, we understand the technology really, really well, the spectrum of augmented reality, virtual reality, human-robot interaction. We understand this really, really well. The beautiful thing is it really is about starting with the person and then applying the technologies. Mm -hmm. It just happens. We get a lot of calls from people like, oh, we just bought a Microsoft HoloLens or we just bought a virtual reality helmet and we, we're going to use it for our teaching. Can you help us? And... I always say, you're actually asking the question, yes, we're happy to help you, but you're asking the question the wrong way. It's, mm. what are you trying to do, and is this the appropriate technology, as opposed right. to, 
wow, this is really cool. Let's use this. We're really looking at um, how to make this effective. Mm. Which, is, which must be the right focus because there's a tendency in technology that the next big thing comes, right? And you, the tendency would be, well, let's jump all in on this new tech, right. whatever this new piece of tech is that's come out. That's what we're going to specialize in. Whereas what you're saying is you focus on the problem and how do we solve the problem and then which means do we use? Is that right? And it might be more or less um, technical, right? You could come up with process changes that actually help what you're trying to do. It could be very low tech. It could be that having just carrying a book with you or like a notebook or something with you is actually much better. Um, So... It's this ten. It's a it's a really nice tension for us because there is this drive for new technologies. Always new technologies coming out, and so we have lots of gear. We have lots of kit in the lab. So it, it, we have lots of um, exposure that our students get to really um, demystifying these technologies and figuring out what works and what doesn't, um, and what can be used in different things. Is it wireless? How, how's the battery usage? Um, does it work outside versus inside? All these questions that. People think they don't know enough about the technology to make the right decision, and so we help them in this case. Mm-hmm. So all of our funding comes from outside. So we we um, we engage with with organizations in different ways. They might support a master student for a year. They might support a PhD student for three years or a postdoc. And so what we do is we they come to us with a problem, and we say, okay, we're looking at the problem. We think it's the solution is going to require this amount of investment. It, mm. it could take a year, and so maybe we'll put a master's student on it. It might take three years, and that way they could support a PhD student. Um, mm-hmm. And so the the beauty is the company gets the solution, at least a prototype of a solution that's going to solve their problem. Mm. A student gets the benefit of having an education with an actual client. Right. So it's not theoretical. Yeah, it's it's not really going to deliver it. <laughs> wow, I'm really doing this. And I get to work with these kids or with these firefighters or, or something like this. Um, and, um, and the lab is making a good contribution to New Zealand society or mm-hmm. to the world at large. Mm. And so we really try and, um, try and combine these three things together. We don't have a large undergraduate program. Like many departments at the university have an undergraduate program that um, uh, they have lots of students that helps help kind of justify their existence because they're teaching lots of students. And we have relatively fewer students. So we have about 40 people in the lab um, so that's the size. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a mix between masters, PhD students, and visitors. Like I was a visitor. We have several visitors who come in for mm-hmm. three to 12 months mm-hmm. into the lab. And we're so, not, We the other thing is we're relatively independent from any one department. So we're not a computer science or a psychology or um, electrical engineering department. We are a research lab, which allows us to bring in people who don't who aren't as siloed as, as you mentioned before is right. we're free to bring in artists we have somebody from the music department who comes in regularly a guy called uh, Hamish Oliver who comes in and he's very interested in immersive audio so he's helping us do a lot of the audio work we do mm-hmm. um, in our systems because he's just really uh, excited about it and so this is a really great freedom that we have to bring in kind of people with different backgrounds um, again the goal is to solve the problem at hand mm-hmm. um, and not not just to do really cool stuff. So Mike, what I learned from ATR, from this lab, is that it can work and that it's a really positive thing. Mm. And the main thing is to find out how you can actually have lasting impact. And so that's the model that we we employ is um, we try and get stakeholders who are the domain experts for what they're trying to do. And we bring in the technology expertise and really important, the evaluation of the goodness of the fit. So mm. we 
um, we can really show that our stuff, you know, what combination is going to be the most effective and productive for right. what the stakeholder wants. I see. And you end up with these case studies, which are real life case studies, right? That's right. Like here yeah. was the problem and here was the solution. And that must read very well when it comes to writing papers and, and getting the results out. Because it's not that's just right. a theoretical thing like, yep. oh, maybe we could do this or that. It's actually, here was the problem, here's the solution, and, and here's what happened. And then the goal, which hasn't worked as well as in Seattle, there were, I think, 36 companies that were spun out of IP that was developed, so intellectual property that was developed at right. the Hit Lab in Seattle. Um, and here we haven't been that successful. Part of it is just the market's just not as big. Um, mm. The population isn't as big. Mm. But we've had some good success stories of IP that's been produced in the lab that's then spun out into um, into companies. Mm. We have kind of two startups at the lab right now um, that are, um, again, using technology that was developed at the lab. And again, I think we're really well-known outside of New Zealand, so it's always fascinating. We'd love to have more Kiwi students yeah. come. Um but the job market's pretty good here, I guess, for tech people. Most people see us as uh, really tech-focused. Right. Um, uh, and uh, so it, in general, our students are mainly from abroad. Yeah. So if you're putting out the pitch, because I imagine part of it would be you'd probably love to have more Kiwi PhD students, right? Um, that's an option for the people who are listening who, you know, maybe you're going, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, um, and, you know, hitlabnz.org is our <laughs> website, and I'm sure there'll be a link somewhere in the... Um, yeah, in we'll the have book. some show notes, and then we'll put in a few okay. links to things. Um, the other thing is we have a master's degree in human interface technology. So people are, who don't want to give the full commitment to doing PhD can come into one-year master's program, um, and the intake starts in February and October every year. Um, and it's a research-focused master's degree. So you do two papers. Um, one is on design and evaluation, and another one is on prototyping and project work. And um, you do those for three months, and then the, the rest of the year, the, the other nine months, you're focusing on a thesis. Mm. And so this gives students um, an opportunity to... The, and the main requirements coming in is that you have to have some propensity to program or at least a desire to program if you don't have a strong background at least you can't be averse to it and you have to have some either exposure or willingness to learn statistical methods because again you need to build something and you need to evaluate something and those are kind of the two ways we do it oh that's great well it's just good to know what options are you know available and in terms of the other side of the spectrum the businesses who approach you and say well here's my problem you're open to getting people approaching it? Yes, definitely. So we, um, it's very common for us to get um, people contacting us and saying, um, we're looking, you know, we've heard about the Hit Lab. We're very interested in um, doing some training for this particular thing. Um, so, for example, first responders might want to do some training. And luckily, they don't need to go out on calls as much. Um, that gives them enough training. So they need more training what it allows us to do is develop a system that um, we can work in a controlled environment but change the variables. So, for instance, in firefighting, we can change the time of day. We can change the terrain. Uh, if it's a rural firefighting, for example, we can change the vegetation, um, um, change the wind patterns, the weather patterns. And all of this stuff can be done over and over and over again in a much more safe and controlled environment. Mm. But we still can get them to the same stress level as they would have um, well, maybe not the same, but <laughs> hopefully a, a, a stress level that will allow us to assess, uh, allow them to transfer the training that they do in the virtual environment, for example, to the to the real world when they actually have to 
fight the real fire. Mm. Um, so that's kind of that's one example, but you could see that this could be applicable applicable to many different fields. Yeah, no, that's great. Now I want to go a different direction because you've been involved in virtual reality now for quite a long time, <laughs> and you've probably seen it um, go in terms of trends or you know. Um, how popular it is or how well-known it's in, it is, it, it probably goes up for a while and then comes back down. And then a couple of years later, it's like in the news again is the latest thing. Um, what's your, I guess, what have you seen over the years and, and where are we at right now? Uh, it's a good question. So um, I got into virtual reality, um, as I said, about 25 years ago now. Um, and at first as a student, and so the, the technology would come out, and it was very expensive. So it was the, the just the computers were um, a quarter of a million dollars U.S. Mm. Um, and then the headsets and the other type of equipment was unbelievably expensive and clunky and large and um, broke a lot. And um, and then things started to get a little bit more commercial, and so heads, new headsets came out. Let's say the mid '90s. Some um, low quality but cheap, cheaper made headsets came out, and everybody was like, "Oh, it's going to change. VR is going to change everything. Change the way we learn and shop and have sex, and everything's going to be different now." And and then nothing happened. We all <laughs> upgraded our equipment to the latest thing, and then right. the companies went out of business. And then five years later, a product that cost a new headset came out, same price little bit updated features came out. Oh, everything's going to be great. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And then there was a big wave. And then we all upgraded our equipment, which was the 200 research labs in the world, which is not a big market. <laughs> so we all updated our equipment, and then the companies quietly went out of business. And so you, this is at least so you've the seen third this cycle. Best, right? <laughs> it's at least the third cycle that I've seen, um, that I've been a part of, where I've seen the equipment kind of come out. And it's it's definitely better. It's definitely cheaper. Um mm. But it just hasn't really taken off. And um, I would say in the 90s and in the early 2000s, at the research conferences I went to, there was a lot of, everybody's looking for the killer app. So what is really going to make VR take off this time? And was, everybody was trying to figure out, oh, it's going to be the military. Oh, it's going to be surgical simulation. It's going to be the oil and gas industry exploring. It's going to be car design. And, and each of these industries actually did um, perform well, but it wasn't really mainstream. It was very much an kind of industrial applications. Mm. Um, and I was a big proponent saying that gaming is really, you know, the thing that's going to make VR different. And there's a lot of pushback because, oh, gaming is not a real thing. It's not really an impact thing. And um, uh, people just said, you know, we can't really be known for gaming. It's just not serious enough. And right. Let's go over here and save someone's life through operating, yeah, you know, a surgical procedure or something. That's huh? great. <laughs> but I'm like, you know. <laughs> so um, I'm not saying I predicted the future, but I just was a big proponent that, you know, gaming is a first-class thing in its own. Yep. I mean, how how big is the gaming industry? Mm. I mean, it's bigger than the film industry. It's, it's bigger than the music industry mm. combined. Um, there's a lot of money around gaming, so you could you can you can poo-poo it as much as you like, but mm. there's a lot of money changing hands. And if nothing else, no matter how you feel about games, they're motivational. They just whatever kind of game it is, a board game or um, a puzzle of some kind. These are just motivational things. So if we can marry this motivation with whatever you're trying to do. Why wouldn't we do that? It just mm. seems to make a lot of sense. And so when when the game industry really got into virtual reality, guess what happened? The price dropped. 
and the computers got cheaper and faster, and the um, the update rate got much faster in terms of the next generation came out, you know, six months later as opposed to five years later. Mm-hmm. Um, the prices came way down. The quality went way up. And so now the commodity virtual reality stuff um, is um, unbelievably cheap for what you can what you get mm. for the bang um, for the buck. It's, it's just, the bang for the buck is just really really good right now compared to that quarter of a million dollar computer a uh, couple That's decades right. ago. Plus <laughs> the you know hundred thousand dollar headset right. that went with it, and and so you know yeah. you had all this stuff, and it yeah. and it, it it didn't do half the stuff that we can do now, and then just there were so many problems. So now it's much better. Yeah. So you know. Um, I'll ask everybody at home. Raise your hand if you have a virtual reality headset in your house. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't. I don't see many hands. And the reason is again, and this is, and again, I'm a proponent of virtual reality. I want this stuff to work. <laughs> um, is the it's once the wow factor wears off. Once you say, "Wow, oh, this is so cool! Look, I can stand here and I can look around. This stuff is really, really great." Uh, okay, now what? It's like, right. really? I have to put this thing on my head all the time? What? It's so hot. Oh, I can't see my coffee to pick it up. I'm getting text messages. I can't see my phone. <laughs> I can't see my, the other people in the room. Um, there's all this problem. The things you give up about, you know, the convenience. Yeah, the convenience of reality. <laughs> is exactly. Um, kind of goes away. So what the lab, what we're focusing on the lab, and again, this is the other thing that kind of sets, I think, the HitLab apart um, internationally, is we're really looking at the usability of virtual reality and not just the visual usability, but the visuals and the sense of touch, and we're working on smell, and we're doing Mm -hmm. um, a wearable vest and a shaking floor and wind feedback and kind of all these things that need to come together to reproduce the real world in any sort of realistic way um, by stimulating the senses. And then, so part of it is improving the multisensory aspect of it, making it really feel like and smell like it is in the real world. And the other aspect is what we call um, the comfort level, is um, improving the comfort level of people who want or need to stay in virtual reality for five hours at a time. So let's say you're at your desk and you have to, you're, the, we're five, five years in the future and everybody has headsets on. How can we allow them to stay in for five hours at a time, not get sick, not get tired, and be able to interact in an office environment using all the social dynamics that are so necessary when you're in an office environment. And so all of the research projects that I'm working on are focused around these issues of trying to make everything much, much more usable mm-hmm. from a multisensory integrated in, um, in the real world um, um, way. Mm-hmm. Yep. So usability, that's the key word, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. And do you think we're going to get there in terms of, because reality, you know, we're sitting here looking at each other in the eye. There is Mm -hmm. a dynamic there that, that I don't know has been capable of being replaced. Do you think we'll get there? I think we will. I think, I mean, there's a lot of things coming together. If you look at special effects in movies, Mm -hmm. so if you think about just the visual fidelity of getting digital characters to look realistic, act realistic, um, the right shadows, the right um, mm. eye movements, kind of all of the these kind of um, nonverbal communicative things that we do. Um, there's a lot of good stuff going on in AI and um, 
that I, that I think are going to um, solve some of this problem. Yeah. Um, and then the technology is getting smaller and faster, cheaper, can work on batteries and, and these sorts of things. networking is obviously really good. So we can communicate all the data we need to communicate very cheaply. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of things coming together. So I think that um, there's good potential. The other thing is this: there's this false battle that, that I've heard the virtual reality versus augmented reality. So if you think about this, the definition of virtual reality is you replace the real world with the virtual world. So in, instead of having a physical table, I have a virtual table. Instead of um, having um, uh, real trees outside, I put on the headset and now I have virtual trees. So I'm blocking out the real world and hopefully all the senses and replacing them with virtual things or computer generated things. Right. Augmented reality is blending things from the real world and the virtual world. Mm -hmm. So you think about if I'm in a physical world and I have a cup or a bottle on the table, I should be able to have a virtual bottle right next to it, and those two should be indistinguishable from each other. So that the shadows should be right, and the, if I move my head, they should stay fixed to the table. These, these kind of problems that you have. So blending the real and the virtual is what augmented reality is about. So yeah. you think about putting on a pair of glasses, and you're looking at the real world through the glass, but you also have projected somehow on the glass virtual content. Mm -hmm. And the technology should get to a point where I can move my head really quickly and the virtual objects don't move around. In other words, they know, they know where they should be in my view, mm -hmm. which is a technically hard problem. Mm -hmm. um, and they should be bright enough such that they really look like if I put if I put a virtual and a real thing next to each other, they should look exactly the same and mm -hmm. behave exactly the same. If it's a beer bottle, it should slosh around in the the beer should slosh around right. in the virtual one just like it does in the real one. So all yeah. of these things are are doable, but we see this more as a continuum and not two individual boxes. So mm -hmm. in other words, I can combine more or less of the real world with more or less of the virtual world. Mm -hmm. So, and we have this on our on the on the HitLab webpage. This is really a continuum. And this isn't this isn't my great uh, breakthrough thing. Um, there's a seminal paper by um, a Japanese researcher and a Canadian researcher, Paul Milgram, and um, um, a guy called Kishino. Um, and they came up with this idea of the reality virtu virtuality continuum, which is this notion of the real world on one end and the mm -hmm. virtual world on the other end, and we blend things in between. Mm. Uh, it's called mixed reality. So this VR, AR isn't really a, a polar opposites, but they're really just different gradations of the same thing. So mm -hmm. you, can, um, you can wear augmented reality glasses and block out the real world, and now suddenly they're virtual reality glasses. Mm. Or you can take virtual reality headset, and you can add a camera or add a way to see through it, and now you're augmented reality. So, and it's really a continuum of what you're combining. Yeah. So I hope that's clear. It's, no, it's that's a little good. bit confusing. It, it makes sense, yeah. And I think the practical reality we saw at the time of recording this a couple of months ago with the Pokemon Go sort of craze where you were going around with a phone and trying to catch these right. virtual characters or, you know, it, so that was kind of that blending of the real world That's and right. the gaming, wasn't yep. it? Yeah. Um, I just want to finish off by asking about Antarctica, because I think during the Tech Week, you're going to be talking a little bit about that. Um, what's going to be the focus for that? So that that's uh, that's interesting. So one of these Tech Week events is is looking at this this um, relationship between space and Antarctica. So mm -hmm. So one of the things you're supposed to do on sabbatical is to do something different than you normally do. And so I've just started getting more into 360 video capture 
okay. and playback on virtual reality headsets. Mm. And the idea is to help um, scientists describe their research in situ. So they're standing on the ice telling you about the seal population or telling you about orcas. Um, and so the idea is the course was sprinkled with um, these really passionate scientists telling you about what they're passionate about mm. in the space that they're passionate about it. I see. And I realized how... So you're wearing um, your, your other glasses of augmented reality and virtual reality I, and thinking, oh, we could do something mm, here. Yeah, there's I a said, problem. This is, this, there's <laughs> a problem. And I think that this first-person experience of having this, yeah. this one-on-one discussion, or not a discussion, this, this person really talking to you about this stuff, um, and they're so passionate, it's just infectious. Mm. And so I said, is there a way that we can capture this and allow scientists to do outreach um, or um, teach some modules in primary school or, or middle school or high school? Um, and so that's kind of a newish research focus for us is this, um, this use of 360 video capture plus the immersive headsets for, and they're very cheap. The headsets are like $70 New Zealand right. um, uh, plus a phone. And then you have um, a great way to view these kind of what I call this. I'm coining a term here: swivel chair virtual reality. Well, that's a great use of technology. That's right, because <laughs> it is quite um, difficult to get to the ice, isn't that's it? Right. So yes, um, it is. to be able to open the access up would be fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, so is that what you're going to be talking about at that event? Yep. So that's that's part of it. Yep. yep. So just thinking about your past and what you were doing back in America before you came to New Zealand, um, how did that outwork into sort of the programs and things that are now being run at Canterbury University? So what I would say is New Zealand is maybe, in terms of integrating game game design and game development into, into university education, is maybe 10 years behind the U.S. So in 2005, 2006, there were only a handful of schools, uh, universities in the States that had games programs of any kind. And today, um, there are over 600 different games programs in the U.S. So it's clearly really taken off. And it's really, really motivating for students to come in and do things like learn digital art or learn computer science type things in this um, in this context. So one of the things that I was really keen to do is to see if that would work in New Zealand. So um, just this past February, we launched a, a new school of product design. And one of the focus areas in the School of Product Design, which is in the College of Engineering at, at UC, um, is around what's called applied immersive game design. And the idea is to marry virtual reality with the motivation of games and health or education or therapy so that students, it's a three-year bachelor's degree, a bachelor of product design, um, and allows students who are keen to learn something about game development to do so in a university context. We are offering our first course on the game development process right now. And the idea is to help um, students who are interested in this very multidisciplinary, um, creative um, thing that New Zealand could become really strong in to come and live the dream, as I say, live the dream of studying game development at a university. Um, and also, I think Christchurch is a great place for this because they're there's a really great vibe here about um, with the rebuild and with um, kind of the creative endeavors that are going on. Um, there's some game companies that have started up, and so we have actually really good buy-in from local game um, local game companies and other companies. Again, if you think about somebody trying to quote gamify a company, trying to gamify something that they do, whether it's training or health and safety, um, we can use the motivation of games 
for non-gaming companies to help them um, do what they do better. Mm. And so we're really excited about this. Um, and so I teach into this program. Oh, that's great. Well, let's, we'll link to that as well in the show notes. Great. So if people are interested, they can find out more. That actually reminds me of another question I had for you. The building that you're in, I think it's called the John Britton Building. Um, and one of the podcast guests on this uh, show was Dorinda Britton, who was the sister of John. And one of the things I found fascinating talking to her was the fact that her, her basic idea was that we tend to think of ourselves as Kiwis as being innovative and coming up with new things. But actually, do we? Are we actually at the forefront That's here? interesting. Yeah. Um, what's sort of your take on that? Because I, I, I don't know about you, but like you say, with the rebuild and things, I see real potential that people could actually come to Christchurch and it could become an amazing base for new innovations and things. But whether we're actually there or as far down the road as we think we are, I don't know. What's your take, having lived overseas? It's a, it's a very hard question. So, you know, what many people have told me about Christchurch is it's um, stale, pale, and male. So that, what I, I had never heard that before, but it was like a year ago, somebody first said that to me. And I'm like, really? <laughs> and and I, I personally think the next five to 10 years is going to be an amazing, an amazing time to be in Christchurch um, because of the potential. It'll be, uh, in the end, it'll be a balance uh, coming through, but I, I really encourage everybody, roll up your sleeves and just, if you're really passionate about something, don't be passive and watch it happen and then complain about it. Just do something. You're, it's within your power to make something happen. It's it's not that hard. Um, if you look at the gap filler movement, I mean, they didn't have very much to go on, but they did some really creative, interesting things. Um, I, I think it's just incumbent on all of us to do what we can. I'm I'm sure certainly jazzed about the whole thing. So yeah. it's up to us to actually make it happen and not just wait for it to happen. Yeah. And so I think that um, we need to make some initiatives to to make it happen. But yeah. that there's lots of great potential. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. My because uh, I'm a lawyer, I deal with lots of startups. People have great ideas, and one of the things I'm always encouraging them to do is to be proactive rather than reactive because too often in life we're kind of the next thing's coming and you're reacting to it but if you have that proactivity it's, right you know you can advance That's great things advice, and, yep. and push push forward and also to ask people for help right <laughs> that's right so, that's so often right. people come in they've got the plan and this is what's going to happen but actually they need to get a bit more input first. And more so, people thinking about a problem leads to better solutions yeah that's so. right which has been kind of a theme that we've touched on right. with the japan yep. approach and things yeah. Well, Rob, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the show. I really appreciate your time and just understanding a bit about what's going on um, right over here at the University of Canterbury. So I want to say thank you very much. For oh, thanks you. for having me and I look forward to great stuff in the future. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview with Rob. I really enjoyed hearing about virtual reality and augmented reality and what the future might hold in those areas. Now, to carry on this theme of technology, next week we're going to be speaking with Peter Beggs who's the chief executive at Antarctica, New Zealand. And we're going to be talking about Antarctica, but also thinking about technology, particularly when it comes to the scientists there and what it takes to survive in conditions that are so difficult. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Peter. And, and, and the Space Challenge stuff we're talking about is not, not just science. Mm. It, it adds the three major dimensions that we look at. Firstly, that our science, understanding Antarctica, it, the second is is keeping our people safe, mm-hmm. uh, and and thirdly is is the environmental protection of Antarctica, mm. and it, you know that's one of the ways of protecting it, other than preventing it from from changing, is 
making sure we don't have any any environmental footprint. Mm. Well, I do hope you can join me for that and other upcoming episodes. To make sure you don't miss out, hit subscribe and consider leaving a rating or review of this show if you found the content was helpful. Until next time.